Hooper now offloads. Oh, so close, still short. Blaubanga. There he is! He's over! Hi there and welcome to Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast, where two die-hard rugby fans having a weekly chat about all things Aussie rugby. We're real, family-friendly and positive, so get involved. Get involved. So this week is one of the best weeks of rugby I can remember in such a long time. Uh, we're recording on a Sunday night after was absolutely incredible the grand final of the super rugby au competition last night i was literally yelling at the tv in the final minutes of the game waking the kids up it was such an experience so i want to start with a rugby related question for you mitch if there was one match that you wish you could have been in a stadium for that involved either an australian super team or the Australian national team, which game would it have been? Ooh, which game would I like to be? I, I'm going to go back. I'm going to stay stick with the Reds theme, go 2011 Suncorp Stadium, um, the victory against the Crusaders, because last night was so exciting and so great to witness from afar. Um, but that 2011 victory was the first time that they, the Reds had won in Super Rugby. It was a bigger crowd than last night. Um, it was more exciting in some respects. So I'm going to say that one. Yeah, that's a really good call. Imagine being there and when Wilgenia makes his break, just standing up and just yelling, go, go. That would have been next level. <laughs> I still sometimes. I'd love to be able yeah. to have gone. I'd love to be able to have gone to that game, like knowing the outcome and knowing what was coming. So yeah. that you could like have that. So you could just be like, you know, as that plays going, Wilgenia picks the ball up from the back of that ruck. And then because in, in that play, he goes right and then he sort of shimmies left and then hits a gap. So if you just get up and start going nuts from the moment he picks the ball up, everyone's like, what's this guy? What's this guy doing? And then he makes that gap <laughs> and then everyone's up cheering with you. I reckon that'd be cool. <laughs> <laughs> I remember um in the in the Waratahs 2014 win um you know when Bernard Foley kicks the final penalty to win the game yep. as soon as he kicks the ball I stood up and just went yes as soon as he kicks it before it even goes through <laughs> and luckily it actually <laughs> actually went through otherwise well you were like a, a much twat. you were much braver man than I because I remember at that time I couldn't watch that kick I had my heads in my hands I I felt like I was about to throw up. I thought we had lost that game. So um, I was only happy when I heard the crowd start to cheer and I knew that it had got over. (laughs) How good. Well, why don't you take us through social platforms, then our Superbrew announcements and news before we get into what we're talking about tonight. Yeah, awesome. So uh, give us a like and a follow. We're on Instagram at hashtag pick underscore drive rugby. We're on Facebook at the pick and drive rugby podcast page. And we're on Twitter at pick underscore drive rugby. Now, um, we are getting more and more vocal on all of those platforms. So please do give us a like and a follow. Um, And if we shift across to Super Brew, we have the Super Rugby AU final has been played. So we do have a winner of the competition for Super Rugby AU 2021. And Hair Red has taken it out as we thought he would. So congratulations to Hair Red. You've come first in our pick and drive rugby tipping comp with a total score of 31. 
Toombs came second on 29 points along with, well, I guess it's technically a, a second place is shared by three people. So Toombs, Rebels 3, and Liquor Box are all on 29 points. I don't know how it works. Uh, I don't know how Super Brews worked it out that they're all 2, 3, 4. Um, but well, they're, they're all they all equal. share the chocolates there. Yeah, we'll say they're equal there. So Toombs, um, unfortunately, wasn't able to catch Hair Red there. He didn't trip up in the last final there. But as a Reds fan, I imagine he was well and truly behind the Reds on the weekend. So well done, Hair Red. There will be a little something coming out your way with your name on it. Um, we'll get in touch with you shortly to organize all of that. And your name will be going on the shield for this year, which is very, very exciting. Now, the news for the Trans-Tasman Comp, we have put a competition together for well, a tipping competition together. So go to our social media pages, Twitter and Facebook. I've shared the link on there. Um, if you were already involved in the Super Rugby AU competition, it should have given you an invite to rejoin. Um, but if anyone else wants to join and get their tips in for this week, please do go in and get involved because we want as many people involved in that as possible. Absolutely wonderful. So just to let everybody know, in case you are unaware, we have purchased a pick and drive rugby tipping competition shield, which we are going to keep forever. And every year that we do a tipping or fantasy comp, we're going to inscribe the names of the victors onto that shield. But also the winner, the first place contender or or winner, will be receiving their own personalized trophy as well. So if, uh, yeah, like Mitch said, if you are her red can you please get in touch with us maybe dm us on instagram or private message us on facebook and we'd love to get your details so we can get that sent to you as soon as possible now for tonight we obviously are going to be going through the super rugby au final the the absorbing the titanic clash between the brumbies and the reds it was an incredible game filled with drama skills, physicality, and controversy. And I can't wait to deep dive into so much of that. Um, We have a whole host of locker room questions that have come flooding in, some of which we'll reference during the conversation about the final, but some of which we'll save till afterwards. We'll do a very brief Trans-Tasman preview before we then go into our picks for the Trans-Tasman round one. Mitch, does that sound good for you, my friend? Yep, very excited to get into it. Let's go. Let's go. Okay, now the moment that we have been waiting for all season, the final championship match of the Super Rugby AU competition and a huge congratulations to the Queensland Reds for getting up 19 to 16 over the ACT Brumbies in what the 85th minute of the game, five minutes into extra time. It was absolutely an incredible spectacle. I'm hugely jealous of some of the friends of the pod and the the people who were able to be the what the 41,000 people in the stadium, which was absolutely incredible. So Mitch, what were your initial reactions as the game played out or maybe even take us into when that final whistle blew in the 85th minute? What were you feeling? What was running through your head? Yeah, I mean, this was this was a test match. This had the intensity, uh, the drive, the atmosphere of a test match. Both teams were not pulling their punches. They knew the final was on the line here. And I, I don't think we could have asked for a better final of Super Rugby AU. So there was... There was a, a few tries scored. There was a few tries disallowed, but I personally didn't think that took away from the spectacle of the game at all. I thought it was very free-flowing. I thought it was very exciting. Both teams were 
trying their best to sort of extend their lead, but uh, both teams were very, very matched and quite even in a lot of regards. So it really did come down to the wire. I thought that it was probably going to from the way that we had seen these two teams play previously in the year and the two previous matchups. Um, I always had an inkling that the Reds were going to come home, and I really do think that playing this game at some court stadium was the deciding factor there, having probably 38 of the 41,000 fans there screaming for the uh, the Reds was the deciding factor at the end there. Not going to go into the controversy around the, the referee at this stage, but um, I just I thought it was a fantastic game. Fantastic Nine was having it on the, the main channel this week uh, that we had so many people tuning in to watch this. The hype leading into this game was fantastic. There was so much sort of atmosphere leading into this game. Um, and I really felt like the game itself, the spectacle delivered. Yeah, and that's just the absolute incredible thing, isn't it? That it actually, after two n- incredible matches that were only decided by two points each in the regular rounds of the competition, they actually were able to live up to and then exceed the hype or the quality or the drama of those regular round games. And that's what really excited me. Now, just to jump in there with a bit of uh, factual information regarding the TV ratings data, courtesy of Sam Phillips, a journo. Um, there was a peak audience on the main channel of nine of 464,000 people. And the average audience of on nine of 285,000 throughout the average of the game was up 232% from the grand final last year. And Stan Sport AU viewers over at 100,000, which combined makes it the most watched Super Rugby match since the 2011 Reds title win. That is huge. And it says so much about the transition to Stan Sport and Channel 9. Fantastic. Fantastic. I really feel like there has been a shift in just the public awareness of rugby as a sport at the moment and having the game on the, f- the main channel for channel nine made it so much more accessible, not just for the people that were looking for something to watch on Saturday night, maybe not necessarily sport lovers, but came across the game and, and tuned in, but the people that were going out to pubs to watch it, it made it so much more accessible for them to be able to get it. It wasn't, on the the behind channels it was easier for the game to be accessible and um i'm just i'm really ecstatic that we got that um that number of people tuning in to watch it because i feel like we deserved it this was a really great season this was really exciting and it's really good now that we've got this exposure for this competition particularly leading into trans tasman and the wallabies games later in the year now, I'm pretty happy in terms of how the game turned out. Like, I, I pipped the Brumb- tipped the Brumbies by five. And prior to that final line-out stuff up in the 78th minute, um, the Brumbies were going to be winning by four. So I was pretty damn close to getting it right. And the the reality is, though, I was only picking that to try and get the advantage in the tipping competition. Uh, tipping <laughs> comp. I, I really needed a boost. Um, and I, I genuinely thought that the Brumbies, prior to the game, I genuinely thought the Brumbies had the capacity to just play a more uh, controlling and mature game. Um, but when James O'Connor went over for that 85th minute try, like I said before, I was yelling and going, yes, come on, Jock, yes, and literally woke my child up in a room next door and he starts crying <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I don't care. What This is just amazing. It was uh, this full redemption, arc redemption. Like you couldn't have scripted this. 
that he would get the captaincy of the Reds after Liam Wright's nearly season-ending injury, um, be recalled to the captaincy after not having it in the qualifying um, for the week before the qualifying final, and then score the absolute match-winning try after kicking almost all of... Did he get all the points for the Reds? Yeah, he got every single point for the Reds in this game. And so he just had one of those games that he's going to look back on for the rest of his life and be so immensely proud of his contribution. And everything we're talking about for James O'Connor at the moment is just purely rugby and how well he's doing. And it's such an incredible change of narrative that I just want to celebrate and keep on celebrating. Yeah. And it, as you said, Ando, it was such a fit. It was so fitting that he was the one that scored that try as well. Uh, the line out that you spoke about um, where the Brumbies two minutes from full time, they they stole the oh, just before that, so probably three minutes roughly from full time. The Reds turn the ball over and the Brumbies get it, um, and they throw it back to the fullback. I think Tom Banks at the time to kick it out uh, and clear it. And one of the players coming through from the Reds turns uh, taps it in the attempt to charge it down. So the the Brumbies then get the throw in again. There's a shot of James O'Connor and you can just see this look of like, first of all, it goes to Fraser McWright and he's sort of screaming at the forward pack saying, come on, boys, wake up. Like the, the game's on the line here. But then it shoots to James O'Connor and you can just sort of see this look of, oh, we might have actually just lost it here. And he has this sort of look down to the ground. Um, but, and in that instance, it's so good to see that he was able to lift himself up, lift the team around mm. him. Fraser McWright gets the the ball back at the back of that, the overthrow from the Brumbies line out. They go another sort of four, five minutes of just constant pressure on the Brumbies and then end up scoring that try. Uh, it, it was just so great to see. And it ended up being the perfect storyline for James O'Connor, which has really been a perfect season for him this year. Um, and I was just so great. I was so happy to see that, I really wanted Taniela Tupo to score the winning try. And I thought that <laughs> in that breakdown prior to it going out to Jock, I yep. thought he had got it down. So I was up dancing and, and screaming at the TV at that point, just going nuts that Tupo had scored. Uh, and then the ball came out and it went to, to James O'Connor and, and he scored. And I was like, well, look, it's probably been scored twice there, but uh, James O'Connor gets it. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that. I think that was good enough. It, it, it is a great finish to a great season for James O'Connor. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what he and this rest team can do moving into Trans-Tasman. Yeah. I mean, look, the, the reality is there is a lot to talk about within this game and some of it has to deal with a couple of the controversies. So what I would like to do is quickly address a few of those points and we'll go back and forth about them just, just for a few minutes and then kind of not talk about it again, if that's okay with you, because I'd rather us focus on the quality rather than some of the potential negative talking points. So I'm just going to start with, uh, let's start with Nick Berry. Now, there has been a lot of conversation going on the Twitter sphere and Facebook pages and all that stuff about um, the, the refereeing within a final, say, five minutes of the game, particularly, but also just about the 20 to 8 penalty count throughout the game. Now, I'm going to talk specifically to the penalty count, and then if you want to jump in and say something about Nick Berry, then go for it. But uh, yeah. James O'Connor said it incredibly well in the post-match press conference. He said, we knew that if we held on to the ball in the Brumbies 22, they would give away penalties. And for me, that is a an obvious and a mature statement, which just looks at the realities that the Brumbies are very willing to give away penalties in a defensive quarter of the field. And that 
they throughout the season have been particularly heavily penalized in the second half of games. Plus they didn't have a particularly dominant scrum in this match as well. So I just want to say to anybody out there that just looks at a 20 to eight penalty count and says, Oh, the ref was biased. Say, well, no, there's actually context to it. And it is not as simple as saying, Oh, one team got more than double the penalties of the other team. So therefore the ref was biased. It's not that simple. I mean, I don't think you can look at this game, particularly those last 10 minutes and say, as a neutral rugby fan, that you, if you're a Brumbies fan, you're probably saying that all of those calls are wrong just because of the nature of rugby and that and how passionate their rugby fans are. But I honestly don't think you can sit there as a neutral rugby fan and say that those calls that Nick Berry made were incorrect. I don't think that there was one call there that was made in a malice attempt to swift to change the momentum to the Reds. I don't think Nick Berry went out there to win the game for the Queensland Reds. And that's what some things have been said online, and I think people have really overstepped the mark there. Um, Nick Berry went out there to referee the game the best that he could, to be as neutral as he could, and I think he really did do that. I don't think that he was out there making calls and giving cards to players that didn't deserve it. Um, I, I think that some of the calls that happened in that last five minutes was due to pressure that the Reds were applying. The Brumbies were starting to be overruled by um, the occasion, by the fact that the Reds were applying this pressure, that the game was on the line. So I, I had no issue with the, the calls that Nick Berry was making. I don't think it ruined the game. I don't think it swung the momentum in the Reds' favour. I think that you, have, you also have to give credit to the Reds, as you said before, Ando, that they knew that they could apply that pressure to the Brumbies and they would start to crack, they would start to crumble, and they would give away those penalties. So in, in the other side of the coin, that's good gamemanship from the Reds to do that, to put the, the, the pressure back on the Brumbies. That was a really good... Uh... Twitter post from Ben Darwin of Ganline Analytics, who is basically saying that it is quantifiable throughout various sporting competitions throughout the world that there is such a thing as home ground bias and that as the visiting team, you need to recognise that the passion of the crowd has a tangible impact upon a referee, even though they are trying to be impartial, um, and that you as a visiting team basically need to need to be able to win the game despite what is probably going to be a lopsided penalty count. Now, there's a really good um, uh, submission to the locker room from Craig Fitzgerald at skunky underscore C that I want to jump to here. He states, although I'm not a fan of Berry, the complete lack of composure and the loss of a line-out at the end costs the game. Don't infringe and you won't be penalised. Although we are all fans in the end and we will support our teams, one-eyed, it's been me many times. So for that, <laughs> I, I fully agree. I mean, the very simplest thing to say to a fan who is stating that Barry cost the Brumbies the match, I would say, no, the missed line-out in the 78th minute of the game cost you the match. And that's when you lost possession and the Reds then mounted attack after attack and built the pressure. And that's when they got an additional yellow card and so on and so forth. But it was really just that line out. If you're looking for a particular moment in time, secure your line out, hold the ball for a minute. You've won the final, you've won the competition. So I personally believe that pointing fingers at Nick Berry is number one probably a response from really passionate fans who care about their teams that are hurting after a really close run, close run lost. And I fully understand that if it was the Tars, I would probably be in the same position and calling Nick Berry a cheat. Um, 
<laughs> I've got the luxury uh, no, and you have the luxury as well be <laughs> of being like um, uh, impartial viewers of this match. Um, but secondly, I think it's also just a massive discredit to Nick Berry himself as a professional. Sure, he's an ex-Reds player, but that doesn't, in my mind, really matter. He is the best of the referees at this point in time. Uh, Angus Gardner has been uh, out injured all season and the other referees don't have as much experience, although I do believe that maybe someone like Amy Perrett could have been given an earlier match throughout the season to give her some further experience. Um, But when we take all that into account, the Brumbies just need to determine and determine their own future and not reply, not rely upon calls from a referee. And how do you do that? You do the little things right, like securing your own lineup ball. It's the same for any team. It's not Brumby specific. It's anybody. I mean, the, the, the thing that's been sort of bandied around on, on Twitter and Facebook and, and all various comments on social media in the last 24 hours since the, the final finished was that Nick Berry ended up deciding the game and cost it for the Brumbies. But I don't see anyone actually highlighting um, any causes being wrong and saying that he made the wrong call there. There have been a few fans that have said that at the very end of the game, the last time the Reds got over the line, it was held up. And so the Brumbies thought they had won it and that he then pulled it back and said, someone was offside. I was playing advantage. Now I've seen a few comments saying that they, the Brumbies fans didn't believe that there was, he hadn't said he was playing advantage. There was nothing on there, but if you go back and watch that, and I think it comes in the 82nd, 55 minute mark or just on 83 minutes uh the reds take the ball i think it's angus scott young takes a a lunge at the line he puts his arm out to the reds indicating that he's playing advantage but the ball goes straight at the line so he doesn't actually say um in his comms that he's playing advantage but he does have his his arm out to indicate that the the little um graphic on the field also says advantage under the reds so the ball then ends up getting held up It, it can't recall exactly if he sends it to the TMO or not. I don't think he does. He says it's held up and then I'm playing advantage. That bloke over there was offside, I think is the words that he uses um, and goes back to it. But that's that's nitpicking and that's just assuming that you don't have advantage and that you should have won the game there. I don't. I personally don't think that he made the wrong call. I don't think that, that indicated that he did the wrong thing. Outside of that, I don't know where anyone else can can look and say, you know, that yellow card to Darcy Swain was incorrect. He came through the mall and he collapsed it. He was, they were, the Brumbies were very lucky that they didn't cop a penalty try from that because when they took him to ground, he was half a meter out from scoring. If they had done that, he would have gone straight over and scored that try. So there's an argument there that they should have got a penalty try previously before that, which would have been in regulation time. Um, I just think the other side of the coin is, um, there has been a few things from people that if you go back prior to the kickoff, some Brumbies fans are already upset that Nick Berry was refereeing the final anyway. So they went into this game expecting it to be sort of sort of like they expected this to happen um, and came in there with some kind of preconceived notion that there was going to be some controversy, that Nick Berry was going to somehow do the wrong thing. So I think there are some fans there that have come into this game already with a chip on their shoulder and they're just using these excuses to say that Nick Berry cost them the game. They're not really looking at the fact that, as we said, the Brumbies didn't secure their lineup with two minutes to go, weren't able to exit their 22 clearly. 
um, which would have ended up being the, t- the deciding factor in this game. Yeah, there's a couple of points within there I'll just speak to whilst I get some more locker room comments as well. Uh, I wonder how you and I would have coped if it was uh, the Waratahs, but with Angus Gardner being a ref as well. Um, that's something oh, we're very as We're well. very professional podcasters, so we would be completely <laughs> neutral. Um, we wouldn't be out yep. there putting memes on people's co- comments and um, starting arguments. We wouldn't do that. No, that would never happen, and I bear no responsibility towards that at all. But also, uh, Murray Amos has said, uh, at Murray Amos on Twitter, the Brumbies weren't beaten by Barry. Unfortunately, they just couldn't see out the win. Um, Keir Ando, so at Keir Ando, says, what happened to neutral refs in finals? Well, I think to begin with, um, Nick Berry is as probably as neutral ref as you can get within a Super Rugby AU competition at the moment, insofar as... You can't have a New Zealand ref come over, even though the borders have just been opened, because they're playing different law interpretations and the the nature of the game has been different throughout the whole season. So just parachuting in a Kiwi ref in for the final would just result in a really uh, difficult game for them to referee because the style of play is different. Obviously, we can't get any referees from elsewhere because of travel bans. And so you have to look at the Australian referees. Well, of them, who are the three main referees? It's what, Damon Murphy... Amy Parrott, Nick Berry. Uh, there's there's another one as well. What's his name? Um, oh, I'm having a mental yeah, blank. I've forgotten his name as well. Bryce? Uh, is he's is got, there a Bryce something? Yeah, he's got brown hair. Um, he's a bit younger. Anyway, yeah. sorry. He's sorry. from Melbourne, I'm pretty sure. South Australia. <laughs> yeah. So, sorry, extra referee. We've I apologize his name. for not recalling on that. <laughs> um, but you look at all those that are available and, and Nick Berry is probably the most experienced and the best of them. And so you want the best referee to referee the game, correct? And so when you take that into account, well, it doesn't, it shouldn't matter that he is an ex-Reds player because he's been a paid professional for years and is very good at his job. He's not perfect, of course, but he's good. So I personally am not fussed about neutral refs or the lack thereof because, I mean... Can I, can I quickly advantage. say something on this, Anna, before yeah. we move on? Um, I, I do agree that we do probably need to have neutral referees. Now, this is a difficult situation being uh, covid Super Rugby AU, there is always going to be that um, there is only one or two people available. Now, I think Amy Perrett's been a great referee. I I don't know if I would say she, at the current time, deserves to ref a final. Um, but if we're going to come down to it, it is going to have this big outcome on the game. There's going to be people saying, uh, you know, neutral refs are deciding the outcomes and that kind of thing. I think if we do stick with this format moving forward, we probably need to do our best to make sure that there's a referee there that is at the required level that is going to be neutral. So um, next year, maybe we see someone from one of the other states referee final and Nick Berry is not in charge just because he is a Queenslander. Um, I think that's probably where we need to move and we can then take this whole situation out of play. Um, I don't know... I don't know what else the, the the Brumbies fans would be saying if it wasn't the fact that Nick Berry came from Queensland. They might be saying that it's unfair that we're playing a, a final in Queens in Queensland. We should be playing at a neutral stadium. Um, so, fans that lose a game in this manner, in this way, are always going to be upset about something. Uh, I do think that the best practice moving forward would be to get a neutral referee from a, a state that's not aligned to a team playing in the final, but it comes down to practicality and feasibility. And at the moment, Nick Berry really was the best option for this, for this final. So we just need to take that on the chin and stop using it as an excuse. 
Yeah, and like, let's not talk about any of those things anymore. Let's actually get into the game. Mm -hmm. Because when you look at just some of the stats for the game, it was incredibly even. Just one try apiece, uh, four penalty goals to three. Uh, the Reds had, what, 237 metres run to 215, 30 kicks to 30, 117 passes to 125, 77 to 79 runs. Possession was 48-52, territory 49-51. Clean breaks 2-4, to four, defenders beaten 11-12, to 12, offloads 3-3. Three to three. It was just absolutely incredible how tight this game was. And one of the features I think that really made a difference was the impact on the scrum that Taniela Tupo was having and the loss of the key figures of James Slipper um, earlier in the season, Connell McInerney as well, and then the injury to Pete Samu too. I think all those combined had a huge impact on the, on the game this weekend because despite the fact that there's some legitimate arguments for Taniela Tupo angling in, um, I think a part of the reason why it looks so bad that he's angling in is because he has so much power that the props opposing props actually just can't resist him and stop him from driving in between the inside shoulder of the prop and the hooker. So there's just a couple of points within it. Like he's just so powerful and strong that he can't be resisted, even though he is partly going in on an angle. I think there's two elements to it. What do you reckon on that one, Mitch? I mean, he, he, he has to be, to be scrummaging legally. He has to be pushing straight. So he's always set up at an angle and he does push at an angle. So yes, technically what he is doing is illegal, but he's not being pulled up for it. And he's been refereed this way the whole year. So it's not something that the Brumbies weren't aware of. It wasn't something the Brumbies didn't know was going to happen. They, I guess you could say that they did the best that they could to try and nullify it. But Taniela Tupo is just such a good scrummager that he's just that good a weapon that he's able to dismantle scrums from anyone. So um, I think it was a really big telling sign for the Brumbies that one of their attacking weapons was their set piece all season. And the Reds were very effectively able to take that out of the game um, and to turn that in their favor. So they were winning scrums against the feed. That's how dominant they were in this game. So uh, that was really great to see from a Reds perspective, but the Brumbies really, yeah, really struggled at set piece time because of that. Conversely, though, the Brumbies lineout was super strong. So the idea of having Nick Frost starting at number six and then moving Valentini to number eight uh, reaped dividends in a couple of ways. I think, firstly, it meant that the lineout for the Brumbies was really effective. Uh, the Reds only secured 15 of 19, so 78% of their own lineout ball. And the Brumbies were able to secure 92 or 13 out of 14 of their own ball. And so that was that was really important. You actually noticed different points that the Reds would turn down opportunities to go for the line and instead either take a penalty sh shot or um, go for a scrum instead. But also alongside that, Rob Valentini had yet again one of his best games for the Brumbies. He's, he's had an incredible season in 2021 and has really actually, in my mind, put himself in contention for being a possible number eight for the Wallabies. I mean, we'd spoken about him being strong number six option, but this showing really gave him an opportunity to get a little bit more of the ball, get involved in some of the heavier ball running in the middle of the field. And he was physically dominant in this game. Um, the yellow card, I think, arguably was a bit harsh. It definitely 
hit the chest first and then rode up into the neck. I just think because it was so close to the neck to start with, it's probably why Nick Berry was leaning towards giving him a yellow, despite the fact that technically hitting someone on chest and then it slipping up is a mitigating factor. I just don't know if the presence of a singular mitigating factor is enough to stop it from being a card. Uh, I, I don't know. But oh, I just in that instance, though, I mean, it's a high contact. So he's standing up and he's standing into the contact and he's rising. We have seen all yeah. season now, and we're talking about it in the final. Games are decided and red cards are given on players who are lazily going into tackles standing upright. And we've had 10 weeks now for these players to change that and to know that if I do go, particularly these taller players, these second rowers and these um, taller number sevens, it's number six, sevens and eights uh, back row, they should be getting their te- tackle technique lower there really isn't an excuse anymore to be going that high at players. They just need to be aiming for the shorts. So I, I had no issue yeah. with it being a yellow card. I, you, I wouldn't have wanted it to see the red card. And we were lucky that it came down through the mitigating factors of it being a red card, but he made contact with his chin um, and he did rise up. So yeah, it's, it's borderline there. It is very borderline. It was a really interesting game in terms of some of the players that stood out or didn't stand out. Uh, I was trying to think through the impact that Ire Simone and Len Ikatao had, or in fact really didn't have throughout the game. They weren't particularly noticeable in their influence within the game, um, particularly Len Ikatao. He really didn't seem to get much of the ball. And when he did, he was met very quickly by an onrushing Reds defence and wasn't able to use his really effective shimmy and then got on the outside of the Reds defence. Um, did you have any thoughts about players that maybe stood out or didn't stand out throughout the match? Yeah, I thought the Brumbies came to this game with a kicking mentality, that they were trying to get over the back of the, the Reds' defensive line and try and find space there. So I think a lot mm. of the time, either it was Nick White or Noel Alessio that was taking those shots. I mean, they both teams had 30 kicks from hand, so that's quite a lot of kicks. Um, and I, I think that the reason we weren't seeing the effectiveness of the outside backs was because a lot of the time it would get Noel Alessio at first receiver and he would chip it over the top or he was going for the line. So uh, in that, I think that is a lot of the reasons that they were kicking for space and they were trying to counterattack that way and happy to have let the the Reds have the ball and run it at them or trying to get that um, advantage to break into open, open field by chipping it over the top or kicking it long and just not playing it in their half. Yeah, one of the things I I was uh, observing during the game in regards to the kicking was Nick White's kick, box kicking game was off during the match. His, his kicks were either way too shallow and so they weren't able to get the territory and the distance on them. You know that kind of perfect like almost four to five second hang time, which means yeah, that you're getting up the field quite substantially, but then your players have the opportunity to move forward and either compete effectively or sack the player as soon as they get the ball and then go for the turnover. Um, and it just wasn't happening. So they'd only go forward about well, 15 to 20 meters. And then it'd just be a bit of a free for all in the air. And usually the on rushing Hegarty or Campbell would be able to snap it up. So I thought Nick White was not as, effective in his kicking game this match is what I've seen previously. Yeah, and I think that came down to the way that Nick Berry was officiating the breakdown. He was very quick to call use the ball when it was sitting at the back. And I noticed a few times, particularly early on, that Nick White would get to the back of the breakdown and then he'd have a look. But the ball sitting there, Nick Berry's called straight away, use it. So he's looking then for space and then he decides to set up for the box kick 
but he's already been told to use it. He's only got five seconds, so he's rushing it. And I think that was a really big indication, particularly early on, that he he wasn't coming to the breakdown knowing that he was going to box kick. He got there, looked around, realized that there was a bit of space over the the back of the the red um, area, but and maybe his forwards weren't set up correctly correctly to to get the ball out quickly and then he take the kick but by that chance the reds were able to reshuffle and to get um ready for that box kick so i think um a lot of that came down to the way that nick berry was sort of hurrying him up a fair bit to use the ball when it was sitting there yeah i hear that and that seems like a pretty astute observation i mean one of the one of the talking points coming into this match was the composition of the reds back three so you had a hegarty at fullback and um you then had campbell and oh my god, I'm having an absolute uh, Pattaya, Pattaya on the other wing. So it was yeah, Pattaya Campbell and Pattaya. Yeah. There's there's my one mental blank for the episode. Thank you very much. Um, so <laughs> within that, I I have a particular opinions about it. But what did you? What was your takeaway in regards to how the back three for the Reds performed, considering the conversations that were happening coming into the match? Yeah, I thought Pattaya had a bit of an off game. Really, uh, he wasn't at his usual uh, abrasive self. He made a lot of handling mistakes, and he kind of went missing in the the last. In the sort of by the fifth, the, the first ten minutes of the second half, he didn't really have much involvement at all, uh, and then he came off fifty-five minutes with an ankle injury, um, and that's when they brought on um, Dalgunu, who for mine was more intent at getting involved and went looking for the ball a little bit more than Bataille did. So I was, I, I mean, Bataille's been so often on this season. He he started well, he sort of drifted in and out of games and for whatever reason, you would have thought that this was the game where he really needed to step up, um, show, put his best foot forward and show the potential that he's got. And he had a few loose carries early. He was stripped in one of the um, his run backs. He just offloaded the ball forward when it really wasn't on. He just seemed to be a little bit overawed by the the whole experience. So I, was, I wasn't impressed with Pattaya, um, but I really did like that Bryce Hegarty was that extra kicking option at the back, and I thought that he kicked quite well for the yeah. Reds. Yeah, and I think that one of the challenges that the Reds had throughout the match was the inability of the back line to really make much progress against the Brumbies' defence, which was pretty solid throughout. Um, even without the stalwart of Tavita Kurandrani being there at number 13, um, Len Ikatao has really stepped up defensively. And the Reds just weren't making any headway. Normally, you'd have Hunter Paisami at least getting over the de- advantage line, and that just wasn't happening. So throughout the game, and... I think it was something that Drew Mitchell and maybe Alana Ferguson as well had mentioned was the uh, potential that maybe they should have or at the start of the second half actually take someone like Josh Fluke off, move Pattaya into 13 and then bring Dungunu on at 14 earlier within the match. Now, we somewhat saw that happen in the 64th minute when Pattaya went off and that Dungunu was brought on. But that was just straight winger swap. Yep. And um, you didn't really have much change from Josh, uh, much impact from Josh Fluke apart from that one break that he made after a really, really effective pass from James O'Connor with a good backline move off a, I think it was off a scrum or a line out, one of the two. It was a set play. Um, I just, I'm, I'm not sure that actually having Fluke uh, at 13 was a good decision coming into this match, considering the fact that Hamish Stewart at 12 isn't particularly much of a ball runner or anything like that. I think and maybe even moving Pattaya yeah. in there earlier. Yeah, would have been better. Yeah, I mean, this was a very defensive game. Both sides were struggling to break the opposition's defensive line, um, and they were both defending very well. So uh, it was a, it was a bit of a similar story for both teams. Both 
center combinations weren't really impactful in breaking the line. There was no one that was making massive carries in the back line for either team. Um, and I was, yeah, I, it was, it, it was a defensive game and it, it's a, it's a final. You can't, you sort of expect that both teams want to try and keep the opposition in that sort of middle 20 meters of uh, 40 meters, sorry, of the field and not let them in their own 22s. But yeah, it would have been interesting to see what happened. I, I do think the Reds really did miss having Hunter Paisami there in the centers. Um, with the game that we saw from the Brumbies, it would have been interesting to see if Hunter Paisami was more effective at breaking the breaking the Brumbies defensive line and we might have had a few more open open play runs and things. But in saying that, I did think Fluke um, and Campbell had some good runs. They did make some meters up the middle. So they were still effective at doing that. Uh, I just think that having a big ball runner like Hunter Paisami would have been a little bit more effective at maybe initially breaking that initial tackle and getting it off and, and then then being able to set up that break. Yeah, I hear that. And I mean, that's part of the questions that we can very easily talk about using hindsight now that the game is over. But it was it was just a really enthralling encounter. So I think considering how long we've been going for in this pod, we probably should move on with some of the other, other points we wanted to get to. Uh, can we just go through a couple of takeaways that you might have had near the end of this game or now the day after the match? Any takeaways for either team or Australian rugby moving forward? Yeah, I think we saw uh, a new era of the Reds being unleashed last night in Queensland. I think the set piece that they've got, their scrum, coming up against the Brumbies. The Brumbies have, for the last few years, been very set piece focused and have been the leader of Australian rugby in that area. And the Reds were pushing them off their own ball, were winning penalties against the feed. So we saw a completely I guess a new crowning of the set piece champion. And I'm really excited to see how the Reds can stack up against some of the bigger teams in the Trans-Tasman competition. But I also think that once the Brumbies get some of their bigger players back, so James Slipper, um, Scotty Seo playing a few more minutes, um, Alan Altoa as well, um, Flafayenga back in the starting side as opposed to coming off the bench. I th- I'd love to see how they stack up against the, the Kiwi sides as well. I think it was a great battle at set piece and scrum time. Um, but the Reds really were the ones that came away dominant there. Yeah, and for me, sorry, just knocked my microphone. Uh, my big takeaway is the success of Super Rugby AU in its second year particularly. There is so much to love about the opportunity for Australian rugby fans to celebrate their team as champions of Super Rugby. And you saw that with the incredible crowd numbers, the the great viewing numbers across both Stan and Channel 9. Um, one of the great questions that's come in from Tom Woods on Twitter he asks future comp structure maybe super rugby au first then play a combined trans tasman as is or follow europe and use the placings of seeds for the second comp and invite the top six japanese teams hopefully they keep super rugby au and look to expand an eight team comp would be amazing would help retain talent and that is really leading to where i am my position on super rugby is starting to become a little bit more um solidified in my mind of what I want would love moving forward. Personally, I love the introduction of the Fijian Drua next year. I think that's a, that's a great thing. And it's only going to add greater competitiveness, greater style, just a variance in style as well, which is really exciting to watch as a fan and to be able to talk about, but, I would love to see Super Rugby AU and Aotearoa stay separate, but then have an almost Heineken Cup style competition where the top three teams from the previous year in both competitions get put into 
the equivalent of the Heineken Cup with some Japanese teams. And then as midweek games throughout the Super Rugby AU and Aotearoa competitions, you have the competition goes on pause for one week and then you have that Heineken Cup match mid-season. And then after the regular season has finished, you then go into the finals, the, the quarters, the semis and the finals of that additional competition. For me, that in my mind is super exciting. You still get the best of Super Rugby AU. You get players competing against the top New Zealand and Japanese teams um, and you get that extra avenue of broadcast money coming from the Japanese market, which in my mind would be super helpful. And I think that money, if it was to happen, shouldn't just go to the three teams that are competing, but should be a greater proportion of it go to three teams competing, but also it'd be shared amongst the other Super Rugby AU teams as well. So teams like the Rebels and the Force who haven't had as many much support in terms of like Wallabies top-ups and that kind of thing also are getting uh, financial benefits from the competition. That sounds way too confusing. Um, listening to what you were just saying then, <laughs> I got lost in it. So I think that's Dude, one of the things the that we had in the last It's few just years the with... English Premiership. That's, that's it. English yeah, and that's confusing. With... I find it's I find that so confusing when they play midweek games. It doesn't count in this competition. And you end up seeing in that format, teams need to have extended squads because the teams that are playing the midweek games are completely different to the teams that are playing on the weekend. So you're effectively having two clubs playing in two, well, the one club with two separate teams playing in two separate competitions. I just don't think we need that at the moment. I think the best format going forward is to stick with Super Rugby AU, stick Trans-Tasman, introduce the Fiji and Drua Moana Pacifica next year, add those into, so Fiji and Drua come to Australia. They play in Super Rugby AU next year. We add in Drua then. Then we play Trans-Tasman. Now, I'd, I'm all for including Japan. I think that's a great idea with uh, introducing them, increasing the money that we'll get from uh, what's the word? Uh, view, uh, not viewership. Uh, coverage. The broadcasting. That's the word. The the money we get through the broadcasting rights through that. The interest there. I just think that we really need to keep. First of all, keep the product simple. Fans are actually understanding Super Rugby AU. They're able to get behind it. They're able to understand that on Saturday the Reds are playing the Brumbies in Super Rugby AU. That's what it means. That's what. Like it, they're playing for the Super Rugby AU Championship. They're not playing on Wednesday for some other competition that. I don't even know how that works. I think we need to keep it simple Dude, at the okay. moment. Yeah, look, okay. I, I hear what you're saying, but it's actually super simple. Firstly, the idea that they're midweek games is just wrong. That's not how it works. It would be you just have one weekend that's dedicated to the equivalent of the Heineken Cup matches, and then the competition resumes the following week. Or, or you do, like you're saying, you do Super Rugby AU in full. And then once that competition's finished, you then move out into this knockout competition. That could be an amended one. But I, I get your point that if we had to have extended why don't we squads, just it do, work. Yeah, why don't we just do Super Rugby AU as it is, Super Rugby Artero as it is, then we move into Trans-Tasman, or we just extend that competition into something else that is not necessarily just Trans-Tasman, but that's when we bring in the Japanese sides. Now, we need to factor in how that's actually going to work logistically because the Japanese sides also need to play in the top league that has a different uh, setup for their their um, their competition completely. They play at different times to us down here in, in um, the Southern Hemisphere. So we introduce some of the teams into that competition and then we play that sort of style of, I guess, Heineken Cup or something. But I really think that we just play one competition at a time. We let 
the the focus at that time be on that competition. It's easier for fans to get behind. It's easier to see how we're tracking. Um, we don't play two competitions at once. I don't like the idea of pausing one competition to play another one at the same time. Let's just play Super Rugby AU, then we play Trans-Tasman. Or we play Super Rugby AU, then we play Super Rugby, if that's what we want to call it, which is the world competition. Um, that's what yeah, I would like I to see that. moving forward. Okay, cool. Um, the interesting thing to note there is currently the top league is meant to be finishing on the 23rd of May. So there wouldn't be that long to wait until we were able to have some type of competition with some of the top Japanese teams involved as well. I think that could be really effective. Uh, so that's just something to consider as well, although that would then break into the June test window or June, July test window. Um, but yep. either way, there's some. maybe we'll put some more posts out and provide a bit more clarification over what models we think would be really effective moving moving forward. Um, but I think what we've done naturally without even meaning to is move directly into the locker room segment. So why don't we continue with that then? Or is there any final thing you want to just say go. about the... Yeah, okay, let's just go then. So um, let's start with Hugh Tyndall, who asks, just bask in the glow of an amazing day of rugby in Australia. How do we think these teams will go against the Kiwis? Now you've seen this ding-dong battle. The Revs and the Force will make them work for it and Atars are five free competition points. Do you agree with his general thoughts there about the Revs, the Force and Atars? I think, yeah, I do think the Waratahs are going to struggle coming into this competition. Uh, I don't see how, as a team, they've done anything to change. They've had three weeks or two weeks now to basically train and I don't see how that's going to be a completely different um, like a restart to the season for them, particularly going into a competition that's going to be a lot harder. So, yeah, I, I, I have doubts that the Waratahs are going to record a win this time. I just hope that they don't record record defeats <laughs> against every New Zealand side. Um, I do definitely think that the Reds are going to be competitive. I think the Brumbies are going to be competitive. Still have question marks around the Rebels, but I think the Force, um, as a team, are able to shut down the opposition uh, and really contain them so they're not... Uh, with their defense, they're not able to score a lot of points. The issue I have with the force is that they they themselves struggle in attack and are unable to put a lot of points back on their opposition, which may be their undoing. Yeah, I, I'm of the general opinion of both yourself and Hugh Tyndall. I'm a little bit concerned for the Brumbies just because of the injuries that they've had. Um, and the, I mean, the Brumbies have to now go to Christchurch and play the Crusaders. Yeah, can I, that's one thing losing. I wanted to say. That's, that's one thing I wanted to say earlier. Um, I, I think it's rough that we don't have a week now to prepare for Trans-Tasman. I think that probably comes down to when this competition finishes and then we move into internationals and, and letter slows and that kind of thing. But that's a massive ask. If you look at the Reds now, they come off winning Saturday night. They now play the, the Highlanders in Dunedin on Friday. So they've got a six-day turnaround coming off a championship winning t winning night. Like that's a massive turnaround to go into a completely different competition. Uh, the Brumbies now travel to Christchurch to play after losing the final on Saturday night to play the Crusaders. So that's probably going to be the hardest game of their year outside of the final, which they've just lost. So massive, massive ask for these players. I think it would have been great to see a week uh, for particularly even if we somehow if we were to do this again next year, somehow put in a buy for that first week for the teams that were involved in the final, maybe. So we don't mm. have this tight turnaround. Uh, I don't know how that works though, considering um, you don't really know until a week before who's made the final, but yeah. scheduling yeah, would be super um, hard with that. Yeah, that's right. But yeah, I, I, 
I think it's going to be a massive week for rugby, and I think it's going to be a really big ask for both of these teams to, to back up. Yep. Okay, Hugh96, how much value do you think was generated by having a game on free-to-air main channel, possibly for the first time ever? And do you think the game will get new fans on board? And how good was the mix of commentators? Oh, it's got, it's got to be absolutely amazing to have the, the game on free-to-air just for the fact that it's got the coverage. Uh, we've got people that will be flicking through the channels who come across rugby and may just choose to watch it. And it was such a cracking game on the weekend that hopefully some of those people, if not had some exposure to rugby in the past, maybe fallen away, have come back and thought, oh, the rugby's on Channel 9. I'll give that a go. Watch it. This is actually really cool. I really enjoyed this. Hopefully we can get more people on board through that. I think maybe not in this instance that this alone um, will be the the one that can the the circumstance that converts a lot of people, but if we can get this consistency moving forward, hopefully next year we get a few more games on the main channel. Maybe the whole final series is played on the main channel next year. I don't know, but having having the final having finals games played on the main channel nine channel will increase uh, viewership, will increase knowledge of the game, and will just help spread the word. So I think it's only great. Uh, it's it's just it's there's no negative for having it there and i'm just so excited um around the commentators yeah i thought it was great i've got to say something here i've been skeptical previous in a year around sunny bill williams and i did think he was a good choice bringing on to the stan sport team but i take my hat off to him and i and i do apologize because i actually really really enjoyed his post-match interviews with the players he was so uh off the cuff like it didn't feel like a, comment, a commentator or a, a media person having a chat with a player. It didn't feel scripted. It didn't feel awkward. It felt like we saw two blokes, two friends, just having a chat after a game of rugby. And the reaction was raw. He came with a very uh, casual, laid-back approach to the interviews, but he got that in response. And I think some of the... If you look at some of the interviews that he had post-match, we saw sides of players that we might not have seen had it been this sort of uh, stuffy, uh, uh, rig- regimented interview. So we saw Taniela Tupo, and he ended up nearly crying when he was talking about not seeing his mom in Mother's Day, and he was chatting to Brad Thorne afterwards as well, and they were reminiscing about their time playing together in the 2011 final against the Reds. So I really, really enjoyed that, and I thought he was a massive uh difference to the team and I thought he was really good I I don't necessarily think he was uh, brilliant in his analysis of the game and and what he brought to that side of things but his post-match interviews was fantastic and phenomenal and I'd really like to see more of that yeah I I 100% agree and that's what I was thinking at the time I think if you're looking for the analytical side of things then you're turning to Alana Ferguson Michael Checker Morgan Tiranui etc as the as the key figures there but what what Sonny Bill Williams did really well, and I'd like to encourage any listeners that maybe were a little bit, uh, had, had these preconceived notions of Sonny Bill not being a great presenter, not being good um, behind the mic, to go back and if you have a chance to just have a quick look at those little interviews at the end of the game, he, he was intimate, he was relatable, and the players like you said, opened up to him in a way I'm not sure they would have with somebody else because he's a great of the game, because he's recently retired, because he's got such a good connection with a lot of the players. They really respect him and um, were very and opened up to him really, really well. So that was fantastic. I thought I wasn't the biggest fan. I, I wanted Morgan Tiranui on there. 
Um, I really wanted Morgan Tiranui on there, but the my thought as to why he wasn't on the kind of the panel during the match was because if you look at the makeup of it, you've got Ros Kelly, they did a fantastic job. Um, oh, sorry, no, Ros Kelly and Nick McArdle, but Nick McArdle was the main host throughout the analytical sessions pre-mid and then post-game. Um, then you had Alana Ferguson, who was the league convert as well um, and would be known to a, a rugby league audience if they flicked across. Same with Sonny Bill Williams. And then you also had Drew Mitchell and Michael Checker there. Now, Michael Checker's got a pretty big profile because of obviously his role as well would be coach and i think he was doing some defense stuff for the roosters as well as being a national coach of yeah. lebanon yeah, he was. um yeah. so yeah you throw all those together and they're really being smart about putting faces on the camera that your non-traditional rugby union supporters may well keep watching because of their presence um so i i understand why particularly morgan wasn't on that panel pre mid and post um well but i think it, that it's he, interesting you say yeah. that because morgan tiranui was on the panel pre pre-match and i know you, we were texting and you said you didn't get to watch a lot of the pre-game but he was sitting oh, there right, with okay. yep. Capizzi and and ros kelly out in the fan zone so he was there and he was probably i guess doing some sort of um fan engagement stuff or media stuff for the reds considering he's an yep. ex-player for them and and that kind of thing. But yeah, I agree with you. I would have loved to to see Morgan uh, or hear Morgan's analysis um, throughout the game. And I think we did miss that a little bit, but yeah, hundred percent agree with what you said there. And that they were smart in that they had this, this new reach of being on the, the main channel. So they were using their league faces and, and trying to bridge that gap between the channel nine rugby league coverage and the channel nine rugby union coverage so that people would have someone to relate to. Yeah, there's a couple of Super Rugby AU comments we'll keep going with. So John Cooper states or asks, how good has it been having regular rugby at a regular socially acceptable hour, not having a team disappear for a few weeks overseas? And then Tony Santamaria asks or says, love Super Rugby AU. I think this brings us together and will make the Wallabies better and more confident as an outfit. Uh, one, should we go alone for Super Rugby, i.e. make that a Div 1 at or add two or three more teams. Um, look, I just think that, and there was a bit more to it as well, but I personally am really, really loving Super Rugby AU. I don't think it's the only thing we can do moving forward for the <laughs> next five years. Um, I mean, I've already said some yeah. idea of what I think we should do, but I think it'll get a bit stale if we keep doing this year after year. Um, it, but I I'm loving the fact that I can turn a TV on on a Friday or Saturday night at 7.45 and know that there's going to be rugby throughout the season. That's just incredible. Yeah, I think um, I think it's a big one. Going to John's John Cooper's answer uh, question, sorry, there around having games on at acceptable hours. I think it's a massive, massive thing. Uh, it makes it so much easier to follow your team. Now, that's one question I guess we'll see with the viewership as Trans Tasman goes and moves along. We're now going to have five games of Super Rugby to watch a weekend. Two games on a Friday. One of those will be kicking off at five forty-five or um, five thirty Australian. Um, Eastern Standard Daylight Savings Time. So I guess we'll see if that ends up getting people still sit down to watch that or they, because it's not as accessible, they'll flick it off or they'll watch it delayed. 
Um, I think there's a lot to be said about being able to follow your team and knowing that whatever day, you know, your team is playing Friday or Saturday, you know, that kickoff time 730, you'll be able to follow and watch all of their games. I think that's really, really beneficial for our game at the, at the current time. So uh, I'm interested to see how Trans Tasman goes, considering there will be different kickoff times and a lot more games to try and fit into that weekend. And some of those games might be clashing. Yeah. Okay. Next question, Brian Knight. How is the difference in refereeing between here and New Zealand going to affect teams in Trans-Tasman? I probably haven't watched enough of the Aotearoa matches to really have an opinion about the refereeing, so I don't just want to talk out of my butt. Um, Mitch, I think you've watched a bit more than I have. Do you have any commentary or insight into this? Um, It's it's quite interesting because I think we've got two different contrasting styles of refereeing. So I think with New Zealand, they're definitely not picking up a lot of the things that are going on in the ruck and it's a lot more free flowing. Whereas the focus for Australian referees have been to penalize and to clean up that ruck area. So two different sides of a coin there. I, I think it will even itself out because we're going to have both Kiwi and Australian referees refereeing teams. So Whilst there will be an Australian team playing a New Zealand team every week, every game, the fact that there will be a New Zealand ref refing one game and an Australian ref refing another, I think it will balance itself out. And and there will pro- there's probably talks going on around their standards of what they want to be seeing across the competition and the and the continuity there from a refereeing perspective. So they've probably got some framework there of what they're working to. I think it, I don't think it'll be a massive issue. I don't think we're going to see in this competition, you know, Australian teams going over to New Zealand and just getting absolutely pinged in every single breakdown i don't think new zealand teams are going to come here and get penalized off the park either i think it'll be fairly even in terms of the refereeing and i think it'll balance out cool now the final comment that i probably should have introduced a little bit earlier or question came from julia on twitter i'm really confused about the how long you have to ground the ball issue what's the rule around that so mitch and i um were having a look in a rule in the law book for this uh question julia and if you do have the chance to check it out i think it was uh eight something d uh i can't remember eight two d or something like that basically the idea is that a player has to immediately try to ground the ball to score a try once they've been tackled or if they're over the line um so the idea is that immediate attempt to ground the ball and you often hear that referred to by referees as one dynamic movement so say if they get tackled and then they reach out and plant the ball then that's okay but if they were then to get up onto their knees have a little shimmy and then plant the ball forward, that's not okay because it's like two dynamic movements. So for Fotowaki, um, uh, he basically got over the line, was held up by Nick White, who like fell backwards, bringing um, Fotowaki onto him. And he uh, then tried to plant the ball down two or three times. And I think it was on the third or fourth time, he finally got the ball to the ground. So although he's not making a massive dynamic movement. It's not that immediate attempt to, well, it is an immediate attempt, but it just didn't happen. Uh, It's not that immediate scoring of the goal in one dynamic movement, um, which I think it wasn't explained particularly well by the referees or the commentators, but that's the law that I believe they're referencing in that moment. Yeah. So he had a few goes at it and he didn't get there. I guess it'd be similar to say he gets tackled short and he can reach out and plant the ball. He does that misses, then has another go at it, misses, has another go at it, gets it down. Now in that instance, it's pretty cut and dry because it's a little bit more obvious. 
it's essentially the same thing in this situation. So he had a few cracks at it. Nick White was underneath. He didn't get it down fast enough. If he had got over the top and then in the process of still being tackled or moving, he rolled off Nick White and grounded the ball, that's a try because it's one movement. Um, yeah, he had a few cracks at it this time. He wasn't able to get it down. So it's yep. not a try there. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, that's Anything it for the locker room. The, any other questions, Andrew? No, nah, mate, we're done. We're done for the That's locker it? room. So I think it's now awesome. time for us to move on to our preview of the Super Rugby Trans-Tasman. Let's go. Okay, so now we are going to do our Super Rugby Trans-Tasman preview. We're going to try and get through this pretty quickly because we did talk a fair bit about the final. Um, and we will do this in... We're just going to focus on the Australian team. So how this is going to look, we'll go through the teams in the order that they finished in reverse at Super Rugby AU. So we'll start at the Waratahs at the bottom. Um, we're going to chat through what our, we think our biggest matchup for this Trans-Tasman comp will be, um, a marker of a successful campaign for each team, and then wh- how we expect them to finish throughout the year so uh we'll start with waratahs and which game do you think leading to trans tasman is going to be the biggest matchup for them well i'm gonna stick away from just saying the crusaders because i mean that's that's somewhat obvious uh i actually think if you just look at the combination of the quality of the team versus the fact if it's away or at home i think that round two blues versus the waratahs at eden park is going to be super super challenging for them um Mm -hmm. that is the blues are obviously a good team they didn't make it into the final but they're still a quality team and eden park is just a bogey ground for all australian teams ever so when we combine those two facts i think it's going to be really difficult um so yeah that's that's my big thing boys I um my biggest matchup is going to be next week or yeah this coming week against the Hurricanes. I think that's probably the best opportunity the Waratahs have of securing an upset. It's the first time that they're going to be playing a New Zealand side, but I think that's a good thing in that the New Zealand's the the New Zealand sides don't really know what to expect from um, an Australian team. So I think that that's probably going to and they're playing at home as well. So I think that's probably going to be their best chance at getting an upset. Um, at home, I think going across to play the Blues at Eden Park was probably going to be my second biggest matchup, but I just don't think the Waratahs are going to be able to win at Eden Park if the Wallabies can't win there. This Waratahs side <laughs> definitely probably aren't going to get, get it done either. So I think I give them the best chance of getting a win this week, this coming Friday against the Hurricanes at the SCG. If we move on to the marker of successful campaign for the Waratahs, what does that look like to you, Ando? Do, how many wins do you think they need? They need to record uh, what do you think will be successful for them? Okay, I think that there's two different understandings of what success is here. I think there's an organisational belief of what success should be and then a, um, a damaged fan's perspective of what success should be. If they get <laughs> one win throughout this competition, I'll take that as a really positive sign um, as long as the other matches aren't blowouts and that they're somewhat competitive throughout. I think from an organisational point of view, the aim would probably be to win, say, two of your three home games. So hopefully beating the Hurricanes and maybe the Chiefs in the final round. I don't think realistically they would expect to beat the Crusaders, even though that's at home. So, yeah, I'd be I'd be thinking from an organisational perspective, three out of five, but from a realistic fan perspective, one out of five plus some decent performances. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I'm going to stick with very similar to your second one there. So I think if the Waratahs can get that duck off the back and get a win in this competition... 
that'll be successful for them. This is going to be a big ask for this young side. I don't think they've had enough preparation, team changes, all those kinds of things in the last two weeks that really warrant um, a massively improved performance. We did see some improved performances in the last few weeks leading towards the end of Super Rugby U, but we're leading into a much harder competition now. So I think if they can get one victory against a New Zealand team, that'd be massive. And I think that's probably all they've really got in them. If we shift then to the next one, what's what? Do, how do you expect the Waratahs to finish on the table? Uh, bottom dwellers, and is that particularly insightful? I think they're probably with the Force and or the Rebels going to be one of the bottom teams. I, I expect the Waratahs to get the wooden spoon again. I just don't see them being able to compete against New Zealand sides to rack up enough points. Even bonus points, I don't think, are going to get them off the bottom of the table in a competition like this. So I would not be surprised to see them finish naught from five and and definitely get that wooden spoon trophy. All right, let's move across to the Melbourne Rebels. So Melbourne Rebels, which which game in Trans-Tasman do you think is going to be the biggest one for them? Oh, this is a tough one. Um, I really... Look, I probably should have thought about this a lot more in preparation for it i think for the rebels i mean their big challenge is going to be the matches away from home they're lucky again and they're playing the crusaders at home in round five but they are playing the chiefs who came second in round four away from home so that's going to be super super difficult um i think that for them it's probably going to be that Crusaders match in round five. I'm not sure whether the Rebels are going to be able to have any sustained improvement with the organisational change that they're going going through. So, yeah, probably that round five match, Rebels versus Crusaders, because I'm not sure they're going to be able to be at peak performance for five rounds of a really challenging competition with all the changes that their uh, organisation is going through. Yeah, it's an interesting one, this uh, Super Rugby Trans-Tasman, in that there's only five games to be played. So some teams will get three home games. Some teams will only get two. And the Rebels fall on the two sides. So they play the Blues at home this coming Saturday as their first game. And then they don't play at home again until the very last game of the round against the Crusaders. So for me, I think it's too much to ask this Rebel side, with what's happened with Vessel standing down, new coaching structures, that kind of thing, to go across and, and be competitive and probably beat a team team away from home i think they might go close against the highlanders in queenstown but i think their best op- opportunity to get a, a scalp against the new zealand sides this saturday um coming up against the blues so again like the waratahs i think this first game is going to be a biggest one and i just think in general i'll say it now i think this first round apart from maybe the reds and the brumbies coming off the super rugby au final is the best chance that the Australian teams have to really cause an upset because they're probably going to come up against some um, Kiwi sides that might be doubting our abilities and maybe overthinking how easy it's going to be to to defeat the Australian team. So um, I'm going to stick with that. I think this is going to be a big game come Saturday night, and I hope I'm going to put it up to the Rebels that that's their best chance to get an upset in this competition. Um, If we move on to the next Question, what's a marker of a successful campaign for the Rebels? Uh, two out of five for me. Yeah, I, I'd sit with that. Two, two out of five would be success. Uh, probably one out of five is realistic if, we, if we're if we realistic there. Uh, they've, they've been a good team in being able to hang with 
with their opposition this year, but they struggle to score tries. And I don't think the Kiwi sides are going to be as willing to give away point, uh, penalties in their 22 and allow them to take those um, shots at goal. So that might be a real issue for the Rebels being able to get um, to get tries in this season and rack up points, particularly if the opposition are going to score some tries against them. They may find that the score goes out quite quickly. Um, where, where do you expect the Rebel Rebels to finish this competition? Um, above the Tars but not above many other people. Um, I think they'll be bottom dwellers as well. I'm not sure if they have. I mean, but I guess before the, you know what? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll just stay with that. I think they'll be near the bottom, but- say second last? Performing better. Yeah, probably second last year. Yeah, I think we might see a New Zealand side sit above the Waratahs. That's what I'm hoping. Um, and the Rebels will come third last. That's, that's where I'm going to put them. I think we might see an improved performance. Uh, getting rid of vessels, new coaching structure, uh, a bit of fresh air, new direction there. Um, we might see some better performances. They might be able to get a few bonus points and, and that kind of thing. So hopefully we don't see them. We don't see two or three Australian teams sitting at the bottom of the table. I think we're going to, hopefully we can be a bit more competitive. Uh, let's move to the Western Force. Uh, biggest game you can see for them in this Trans-Tasman competition. I think it's the first one, the versus the Chiefs at HBF Park uh, this coming Saturday. Uh, I think that's going to be absolutely massive because it's going to be a real statement of intent for them. They've had some time off to prepare after the qualifying final. They hopefully will have a couple of the bigger name players like Rob Carney back into the team from injury layoffs. I really hope that this is an opportunity for them to make a huge statement. So the Chiefs will have to be doing the largest travel um, of any team in the competition. Um, for the first round, they are going to be going in Australian competition, probably with Australian referees, uh, a ground that is pretty well known for being very vocal for their support of the home team. So it's no Eden Park, but yeah, Australian teams generally play and force play well at home. So, or at uh, Perth particularly. So I think it's going to be a really challenging match for the Chiefs that the force may well just be able to sneak through. I don't think they would be going into it as favourites, but I think that it's a real going to be a real marker and statement of intent for the rest of their season. Yeah, I, um, I, I agree with what you're saying there, but I think the real... Uh, the game that the, the Western Force will be putting their sights on probably be round two against the Highlanders. So the Chiefs did play well in the final this week. That might be a factor in that game, that they're coming off a bruising final that they've just lost to the Crusaders. And as you said, Endo have to travel a long way to get to Perth. But I think Highlanders at home round two, not as well performing this season as the Chiefs. Did get some upsets, but not uh, not right up there, didn't make the final. So I, I think the Western Force are probably going to be looking at that as their best shot at getting knocking off one of these teams if they don't do it in round one. Uh, next part of the question, mark of a successful campaign for the Western Force. How many victories are we looking at? Uh, realistically, two in my mind because they'd be hoping to get the wins for round one and two. And then they play the Canes away, Crusaders away and the Blues away, one after the other. And so that's going to be super challenging and super difficult for them. Um, they don't have an opportunity later in a competition to play in front of the home crowd. So, yeah, that that for me is a massive, massive opportunity uh, for them. And I really think that, yeah, two, two out of five will be the takeaway for them. Yeah, I think two out of five is achievable for this Western Force team. One of those will come from home. I'd love to see them win away. 
it's going to be a big ask. But if we look at, as you said, Ando, they've got their first, they're another one of the teams that only has two home games and they've got them both first. And then they go over to New Zealand and play their three away games one after the other. So if they can get a victory in that first round or second round in those, those first two home games, I think they might be able to be good enough to sneak a victory away from home as well. So two would be great. Two, I think, would be a good season. Three would be phenomenal. Um, they've already shown this year that they've impressed everyone and, and gone a little bit above what we all expected. So hopefully we can see them play a little bit better. Um, what do you? How do you expect them to finish on the table? Oh, look, it's hard because we're only doing it from one side. Um, we're only doing it from yeah. the perspective of the Aussie teams. So I'm kind of just going to do like one to five in, in terms of like Australian rankings and Australian finishings. So okay. I, th- yeah. I think that the finish, honestly, mate, is going to be as the um, AU competition has finished up. I think that they're going to be the third best or um, the <laughs> what is it, third worst of the Australian teams. I think they're going to do better than the Rebels, but I don't think they're going to exceed the Brumbies or the Reds. Um, the Western Force only get two home games, so it's 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 really difficult for them. Um, so I think they'll probably be equal to or just above the Rebels, but beating the Waratahs. Yeah, I think that they'd be in the upper half of the table. I'd like to see them finish up there. I think that they will. I, I think they're good enough to not be in that bottom half. I think we they will finish above one or two of the New Zealand side. So I they may not be making the. Fi- I don't think they'd be making the final. They may. Um, but I, I would expect them to finish in the, the top half of the table for me. Let's move across to Brumbies now. So biggest matchup for them. They've got the Crusaders up first. Very big ask. A lot of travel for this week. How do you see them? Which game do you see them really sort of looking at and taking control of? Oh, look, I don't think... If we just start with the, the main question of what their biggest matchup is, I think it's this weekend, um, Crusaders versus the Brumbies. I mean, they have to come off a bruising loss, a couple of injuries to key players, and now go away and play the Crusaders away. Like, that's that's a huge ask. And then they have to back it up again, playing away against the Chiefs. So as much as I... I wasn't the greatest fan of some of the things that Dan McKellar had to say in the post-match press conference. I get that he was a bitterly disappointed coach of a team that had just lost the final. Um, so there's a lot of empath- there's a lot of sympathy going out towards him. I get some of the context where he's coming from there. Um, he's the, the Brumbies are really up against it in the first two rounds. That's super challenging for them. Um, so I think that the biggest matchup will be in the first and then just the second games. Like it's, it's super obvious, but it's also because it's so obvious, just true. Yeah. And I'll, I'll put them both together. Uh, biggest matchup in mark of success. I think those first two games, first three games really going to be really quite difficult for the Brumbies, but in some ways it's good that they don't have to travel back and forth too much. So they'll be able to get over to New Zealand, pace themselves there, play three games before coming home and really finishing off the, the competition strongly. So I think a successful season would be three victories, maybe two over there. Uh, sorry, the two home games, I would expect them to win against the Hurricanes and the Highlanders. I think they're good enough to do that. And maybe, one even two victories away from home in the the first three rounds i i could see that i could see them beating the blues particularly i think they'll struggle against the crusaders i don't think they'll be be able to do it this week it's just too much to ask tight turnaround a lot of travel that kind of thing but we can competitive against the chiefs i think they'll beat the blues so for me success three or four wins i also see them finishing in the table at the moment 
the Brumbies and the Reds are sort of sitting up there as, as very, very close in, in form at the moment. Either of those teams I would love to see and expect to be in the final of this competition. Have Agreed you, on all fronts. You, what do you say? Anything yeah, you want mate, to add to I that? Yeah, I really don't have anything Reds. different. I'm happy for us to keep going. Cool. So, Queensland Reds, for me, their biggest matchup, I think round two. They play the Crusaders at home in round two of the competition. Let me just actually double check that. I've got that right. Yes, correct. Yes, they do. So they play the Highlanders this Friday night. Now, that's going to be a big ask for the Reds. They've just come off the Super Rugby final. They've won that. They'll be on a high, but then they've got to travel and go up against the Highlanders first round. That's going to be a a tough ask. I don't necessarily think they'll lose it, but it'll be a big, big game for them. I think their biggest matchup is going to be the Crusaders round two. So their competition looks like away round one, home round two, three, four, and then away round five. They've probably got the best looking um, lineup for this Trans-Tasman competition in that they get their three home games right in the middle of the, of the, of the pack. I think a successful season for the Reds would be three or four victories out of this. I can see them being able to do that. I think they will definitely beat the Chiefs and the Blues at home. They might push the Hurricanes away and the Highlanders. I, the, that's going to be a big one against the Crusaders. Again, as I said about the Brumbies, I think either of the Brumbies or the Reds connect the Super Rugby Trans Tasman final. Yeah, mate. I think everything. Anything else you wanted to say there? Again, just makes it makes sense, and it's based upon the current form of the teams. So I really don't have anything that's particularly uh, differing from what you stated. So yeah, fantastic. Well, let's move across into our picks for round one. So game one of the round sees the Highlanders hosting the Reds in Dunedin. Which way do you see this game going, and who are you tipping in by how much? Yeah, I I can see this going a couple of ways just because of some of the injuries that the Reds will have in terms of um, Pattaya, Paisami, Wilson as well. I doubt Wilson's going to be back from his concussion uh, in time for this match. So it's going to be a really difficult one for the Reds for them to get up for. So I wouldn't be surprised if the Highlanders got the win, but because of the kind of... Um, I don't know, the Aussie blood that's running within my soul, running within my bones. I'm going to be picking the Reds, but I don't think they're going to run away with it. So Reds by about five. Reds by five. Fantastic. Um, yeah, I I think the this is going to be a big game for the Reds. I think they're going to be too good for the Highlanders. So I'm going to go Reds by three. All right, game two, Waratah's first home game of Trans-Tasman playing against the Hurricanes on Friday night. How do you see this one playing out? Um, I have some hesitant enthusiasm for the Waratahs prospects here. I don't think by any stretch of the imagination they're coming in as favourites, but I think they definitely have a chance within the game and that they've shown enough in the last couple of rounds of Super Rugby AU to demonstrate they're not going to be complete walkovers in this competition. Uh, That being said, I think that the Hurricanes will still have too much firepower for them just in terms of overall experience. They can play a very up-tempo game and I think that the Waratahs are going to struggle with that. So I would be picking the Canes by about 10. 10. Okay. I don't... Yeah, I mean, this is interesting. This is the first round of Trans-Tasman. We really don't know how, first of all, the Kiwis are going to prepare to play against our Aussie sides, but how our Aussie sides will match up against the Kiwis. Two different styles of play, two different competitions, two different focuses there. So I'm optimistic that the Waratahs will be a little bit better in this competition, but, or probably hopeful is the better word, that they'll be better. 
Um, my heart says the Waratahs might get a win here, but my head says the Canes are just going to be too good. So I'm going to have to go with the Canes on this one just for the tipping comp sake and probably go by seven. If we go to game three, the Crusaders hosting the Brumbies. This is Dan McKellar's worst nightmare at the moment. How do you see this one playing out? Yeah, probably like his nightmare. I think that like uh, the Reds are going to be struggling with a couple of injuries. The Brumbies um, more so. I don't. They don't won't have James Slipper back. I don't think they've got Pete Samu either. Um, Andy Muirhead went down as well with an injury. So it's it's going to be a very battered and bruised side that's going to be rolling out to face the Crusaders. I'm not going to be surprised for actually all the teams in round one if we see. I wouldn't. I wouldn't demean the players by saying they're going to be second string teams, but I think there's going to be a signal that all teams put out there, particularly uh, the Crusaders, the Chiefs, the Brumbies and the Reds are going to be doing a fair bit of rotation. So with that in mind, I'm going to be calling the Crusaders at home because the home ground advantage is going to be really important when both teams are probably going to be making a fair few changes. So I'll go Crusaders by eight. By eight. Yeah, I really don't. I don't think you can go against the Crusaders at the moment. Uh, it's going to be too much to ask, I think, for Numbies to travel, tight turnaround. And with the, the the injuries that you just mentioned before, I just don't see this going any other way. So I'm going to stick with the Crusaders by 10. Game four sees the Rebels hosting the Blues at home. How do we see this one going, Ando? Um, look, realistically, I think the Blues will probably win by maybe somewhere in the region of like five to 12. Uh, I'll probably go with five because the rebels might have, I think someone's called it like a dead cat bounce after having a coach sacked. Um, but the rebels could, could well sneak the win at home with that. Oh, let's let's do it for Dan uh, attitude. But I think that Dave, I don't know. I'm just not do it for uh, Dave. Dave. Sorry, Dave, <laughs> not Dan Andrews. <laughs> Um, I just think that overall, I'm not convinced that the Rebels have had the consistency or the attacking flair, uh, attacking um, impetus throughout the course of the season to really worry the Blues a huge amount. If the Rebels were to go back to their style of play they demonstrated within the first like three rounds of the competition, I think that they could beat the Blues, but they seem to have moved away from it. So I do see the Blues getting up. Yeah, cool. Okay. Well, I'm going to buck the trend here. I'm going to go for the Rebels. Uh, I'm going to hope for, as you said, the the sack coach bounce. And I think this is probably this and the next game are the two ones where we're probably going to see some of the Australian sides be underestimated of their ability. And I think we'll get a good indication here of where we sit in Australian rugby. So I'm going to go with the Rebels. I think they're going to, it'll be tight. I'm going to say by three and it'll probably go down to the wire. I'm going to bat the Rebels here. So let's hope this doesn't come back to bite me, but it probably will. Let's move <laughs> into game five, last game of the round. The Western Force hosting the Chiefs over Perth. How do you see this one going? Uh, Chiefs by five. I think the Force will bring it into a dogfight like they always do, but they have barely been able to mount a backline attack throughout the entirety of the season. And I haven't seen or heard of any reason for that to change. So I'm just not convinced they've got enough firepower in their team despite the decent defensive rugby that they've played at points throughout the season. I just don't think they've got enough to get out up over the chiefs. 
Okay, so Chiefs by five. I'm going to, again, buck the trend and go for the force with this one. I'm going to flip the coin. I'll go force by five. I think this is going to be the round where, as I said previously, we we don't know how all of these teams are going to come into it. The Chiefs are coming off a loss against the Crusaders. They're going to have to travel the furthest. I think the force playing at home with two weeks preparation are going to come out firing in this game. And they know what they need to do to, to really rock up the table and be competitive towards the end of this competition. So big, Big props to them. I think they're going to come out with intent here against uh, with the sea of blue behind them. I'm going to go with the force four to five. Awesome. All right. Well, that's it. I think that's it. We're done. We've uh, this has been a long podcast. It really has been. There's been so much to talk about, and I mean, it just it's a result of a really fantastic game of rugby, and then a really exciting opportunity now to test ourselves against the New Zealand teams. So there's been a lot to chat about. Thank you everybody for getting to this point in the pod. If you've made it, thank you so much to everybody who contributed as well within the locker room segment. It's great to hear from you, and thank you just for listening. It's been fun, and I look forward to being here with you all next week. So have a wonderful week, and we'll. We'll catch you next time. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye.